0: Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in me. Stories me set the tables around which we live our lives. My name is Mike Roth, and this is Story and Table, a personal and academic exploration of Christian ideologies and the systems that these ideologies sustain. Welcome to Story and Table. This is Season 1, Episode 5, A Salvation Story. To begin this episode, it's going to be helpful to split some theological hairs, which aren't often distinguished in the storytelling that's central to Christianity, especially in the United States. Here's what I mean for many Christians today, the words gospel, salvation, and atonement are understood to be synonyms. That's to say, these words are often used interchangeably. For example, many Christians today would say that to believe in the gospel is to be saved. Or, to be saved is to believe in the gospel. And the gospel is the work of atonement. And so atonement is the way in which a person is saved. And that's the gospel. Clear as mud? (laughs) Now, to be clear, these three words are associated, but they aren't the same thing. Gospel, salvation, and atonement are not synonyms. Let me give three brief but technical definitions. Gospel is the declaration of good news. Salvation is being saved from a predicament. And atonement is the reconciliation of estranged parties. With these technical differences in mind, this episode is about the story of salvation, which refers to being saved from a predicament. And for many Christians, especially in the United States, the predicament that requires salvation is twofold. Predicament number one, because of original sin, a person is depraved and in need of forgiveness. And predicament number two, because of original sin, a person is destined to eternal torment in hell. With these two predicaments in mind, we're now ready to hear the story of salvation as it's told by many Christians today. It goes like this, a person is saved by believing in Jesus' shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And a person who receives forgiveness of sins is saved from eternal torment in hell. That's the story. Because of original sin, a person is depraved and in need of forgiveness, which comes by believing in Jesus' shed blood on a cross. And because a person is depraved, they are destined to eternal torment in hell. But the forgiveness of sins results in the promise of eternal life in heaven. Predicament, sin, and hell. Salvation, forgiveness, and and heaven. That's the story of salvation according to many Christians today. Let's now take some time to consider the kind of table that this story of salvation sets in the lives of people. One feature of the table that this story of salvation sets is a deeply embedded belief in the inherent wickedness of humans. This rises from the idea of original sin, which I shared about in the last episode. And so rather than repeat myself in explaining how original sin is a misinterpretation of the Bible stories inciting incident and of Romans chapter 5 verse 12, I'd like to briefly touch on how this way of seeing is horrifying. To be depraved is to be morally corrupt and wicked through and through. With this in mind, original sin demands that we see every single human being through this lens. And this way of seeing people has an impact. Like, if every person is depraved through and through, then we cannot possibly expect goodness from the lives of those who are quote-unquote unsaved. Quite the opposite, in fact. Because if a person is depraved through and through, then what we must expect from them, from those unsaved humans, is corruption and wickedness again and again and again not only is this a horrifying way of existing in the world, but it's also at odds with our lived experiences of those who are quote-unquote unsaved, isn't it? Like, is your experience of unsaved children corruption and wickedness through and through? Is your experience of unsaved neighbors corruption and wickedness through and through? Is your experience of unsaved coworkers, acquaintances, and strangers corruption and wickedness through and through? is your experience of unsaved people groups corruption and wickedness through and through if we're being honest the answer is clearly no of course humans do corrupt and wicked things but this is just as true for those who are quote unquote saved isn't it and this leads me to another feature of the table that this story of salvation sets which is violence because if people aren't actually corrupt and wicked through and through because there's actually no such thing as original sin, then a story of salvation in which people who are mostly good but sometimes bad, like every human being, do not deserve to go to a place of eternal torment forever, do they? And just for a moment, I want to notice how strange the word deserve is here. In this particular story of salvation, Christians are taught to think that humans, created by God but corrupted by something that Adam and Eve did, deserve to go to a place of eternal torment forever. But how in the world does any human deserve that? That's not fair. It's not just, and it doesn't make sense. It's just plain unreasonable. Another feature of the table that the story of salvation sets is puzzling forgiveness. Because in this particular story, a person must believe in Jesus' shed blood for God to forgive their sins. But let's just think about that for a moment. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God forgives people again and again. Now, if you're deep in this particular story of salvation, you may want to respond by saying, yeah, but but that's because God had Israel make sacrifices which resulted in forgiveness. And that's why people need to trust in Jesus' shed blood to receive forgiveness. But if that's true, then why was God able to forgive people before the sacrifices were established in the second half of Exodus and the book of Leviticus? Because God was forgiving people throughout Genesis and in the first half of Exodus. And throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God forgives non-Israelite people and nations who weren't even a part of Israel's sacrificial system. And even Jesus himself was forgiving people before he died on a cross. Besides, does it even make sense that God needed Jesus' blood to forgive humans? Again, if, if you're deep in this particular story of salvation, you're forced to say yes, but that's a misunderstanding of atonement, which I'll get into in the next episode. For now, let's not miss how tragic this understanding of forgiveness is. For example, let's say that a kid across the street intentionally throws a baseball through the front window of our house. We return home to find the window broken. We're not sure who did it. So we just fix it. Over the next few days, that kid starts to feel really, really bad. And he eventually knocks on our front door. And with tears in his eyes, he says, I am so, so sorry. And I can really feel how bad he feels. And so I really want to forgive him. And so what do I do? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I tell him to wait. I go and kill my firstborn child, and then I come back to the front door to let him know that everything is okay. I can forgive him. But is everything truly okay? Because in order for me to forgive a kid, I had to become a murderer. Does that make any sense at all? No. And yet, this is the very story that many Christians today tell about God in order to quote unquote save sinners. And here's one more feature of the table that this story of salvation sets, which is no connection to Jesus' gospel as we see it in Luke chapter 4. As I shared in episode 2, Jesus' gospel, which is to say Jesus' declaration of good news, is freedom from bondage, healing for the sick, release for the oppressed, and God's favor on everyone. Yet this particular story of salvation has nothing to do with Jesus' gospel. Because, according to this particular story of salvation, the predicament is sin and hell, and the salvation is forgiveness and heaven. And that's a problem. It's a problem that the story of salvation that many people tell today has no connection to Jesus' gospel in Luke chapter 4. It's also a problem that this particular story of salvation has nothing to do with Jesus' life or ministry outside of his crucifixion. And this brings me to a more robust and coherent story of salvation, which, to understand, we need to begin in the Hebrew scriptures. But first, a brief word study. Salvation and its associated words, such as save, saved, saves, saving, and savior, occur nearly 500 times in the Bible. The word salvation occurs about 127 times. The words saved, saves, and saving occur about 300 times. The word Savior occurs about 40 times. And here's what's interesting. Most Christians today, especially in the United States, think of salvation as a New Testament, a uniquely Jesus thing. And yet, roughly two-thirds of the Bible's salvation words are found in the Hebrew scriptures. Furthermore, while most Christians today, especially in the United States, think of salvation as forgiveness and eternal life, outside of Daniel and Ecclesiastes, two of the latest written books in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is no mention of individual life beyond death. And there's absolutely no mention whatsoever of anything similar to Christianity's ideas about the afterlife. And how about the New Testament? Well, at times the concept of salvation is applied to the predicament of sin and death, but there are other equally prominent, if not more prominent ideas about salvation. For this reason, it's undisputable to state that salvation is about much, much more than forgiveness in the afterlife throughout the Bible and the New Testament. The Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua, which simply translates help. And the Greek word for salvation is soteria, which translates deliverance or preservation. Based on this information, salvation speaks to being saved from or helped out of a predicament and the predicaments requiring salvation are multifaceted throughout the scriptures. Here's what I mean. In the Hebrew scriptures, salvation has three primary meanings. First, there's salvation as liberation from bondage. Exodus chapter 14 verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And from Hosea chapter 13 verse 4. Yet I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. And from Psalm chapter 106, verse 21, they forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And so you see, one aspect of God's salvation in the Bible is liberation from bondage. A second kind of salvation that we see is return from exile. As you may recall, after liberation from bondage in Egypt, Israel became a nation that over time was conquered by Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia. But the story tells us that God moved the heart of Persia's king, King Cyrus, so that Israel was allowed to make a return to the land. About this, Isaiah writes in chapter 46, verse 13, I bring near my deliverance, it is not far off, and my salvation will not tarry. And about Israel's journey back to the land, Isaiah explains in chapter 43, verses 2 and 3, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so you see a second aspect of God's salvation in the Bible is return from exile. And a third kind of salvation that we see is rescue from peril. This is the primary meaning of salvation in the Psalms. Salvation appears in the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes the peril is illness. For example, Psalm chapter 69, verse 29. But I am lowly and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, protect me. And sometimes the peril is the wicked. For example, Psalm chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. O Lord my God, in you I take refuge, save me from all my pursuers, deliver me, or like a lion they will tear me apart, they will drag me away with no one to rescue. And then sometimes the peril is death itself. For example, Psalm chapter 109 verse 31, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save them from those who would condemn them to death. In summary, salvation speaks to being saved from or helped out of a predicament. And the predicament is multifaceted throughout the scriptures. In the Hebrew scriptures, salvation is liberation from bondage. Salvation is return from exile. And salvation is rescue from peril. Notice, this is so important to notice, nothing here about blood for forgiveness or ensuring life in heaven as opposed to hell. And moving into the life of Jesus, notice how this multifaceted salvation from the Hebrew scriptures coheres with Jesus' gospel and ministry. Liberation from bondage? Well, in Luke chapter 4, part of Jesus' gospel is the declaration of captives released and the oppressed set free. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he is consistently releasing captives and freeing the oppressed. And how about return from exile? Well, Jesus says again and again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repentance has two primary meanings, and the primary Hebrew meaning is return. I love this idea of repentance so much. Have you lost your way? Which is to say, have you over time in this world grown to a place where you realize that you have lost yourself? Well, then repent. Return. Head back home. Home to your deepest and truest self, which is to say, home to the very heart of God. And how about rescue from peril? Well, in Luke chapter 4, part of Jesus' gospel is the declaration of healing. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he heals again and again and again. And so you see, the salvation that Jesus works in the Gospels is very much like the salvation that we see God working throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And so, with all of this in mind, let's now take some time to consider the kind of table that this story of salvation sets in the lives of people. One feature of the table that this story of salvation sets is harmony. By that I mean, there's harmony between the salvation that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures and the salvation that we see Jesus' work throughout His life and ministry. Furthermore, there's a harmony between the salvation that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures and Jesus' declaration of good news gospel. Which is to say, Jesus declared His gospel of good news in Luke chapter 4, freedom from bondage, healing for the sick, release for the oppressed, in God's favor on everyone. And then he makes this good news manifest by working out salvation in the lives of people experiencing the predicament of bondage, experiencing the predicament of sickness, experiencing the predicament of oppression, and experiencing the predicament of not being favored. And this brings me to another feature of the table that the story of salvation sets, which is truly good and desperately needed salvation. By that I mean we live in a world where people are in political, economic, and religious bondage. How good and necessary is a salvation that's intentional to set humans free? I would say it's very good and very necessary, wouldn't you? And we live in a world in which there is both literal and existential exile, which is to say that some people are quite literally exiled from their homelands, And many people are existentially exiled, experiencing a lack of belonging, or sincere fragmentation, or incredible suspicion about God's pervasive and abiding love. How good and necessary is a salvation that's intentional to help, to nurture, to work toward freeing people to return home? I would say it's very good and very necessary, wouldn't you? And of course, we live in a world where people are in peril. How good and necessary is a salvation that is intentional to heal? I would say it's very good and very necessary, wouldn't you? Now, for those who live within the first story of salvation that I told, you may be wondering about the spiritual side of salvation. And by that, you mean forgiveness and getting souls into heaven. I'll dig into forgiveness in the next episode on atonement, episode 6. And I'll get into the afterlife in the episode after that, episode 7. But I do want to push back on this idea that the story of salvation that I've just told isn't a spiritual salvation. The word spiritual refers to the immateriality of human existence. And so a few aspects of that which is spiritual could include important human experiences such as wonder, gratitude, and peace, which are immaterial aspects of human existence. With this in mind, when a person is saved from bondage, I imagine that some of their spiritual reality then includes some wonder, gratitude, and peace. And when a person is saved from either literal or existential exile, I imagine that some of their spiritual reality then includes some wonder, gratitude, and peace. And when a person is saved from peril, I imagine that some of their spiritual reality then includes some wonder, gratitude, and peace. And this, I believe, is another feature of the table that this second story of salvation sets, which is spiritual health and vitality. For certainly, when a person is saved from bondage, their spiritual life brims with elation. And when a person is saved from exile, their spiritual life overflows with gratitude. And when a person is saved from peril, their spiritual life is transfixed by a deep and abiding sense of peace. Yes, please. More of that, right? A salvation that's in harmony with the depth and breadth of the salvation that we see God working out in the Hebrew scriptures. A salvation that's truly good and desperately needed in the world today? A salvation that resolves very real predicaments resulting in spiritual health and vitality? Wouldn't that be a salvation worth entering into and enacting with our very lives? I think so. And it's into this good, robust, and needed salvation that Jesus invites us into working out in the world until love becomes so manifest that there is no longer a predicament out of which humans need salvation. Stories set the tables around which we live our lives. May your life be filled with good stories that set loving tables around which you are freed and inspired to flourish. Thanks for listening to Story and Table. If you find this podcast worthwhile, thought-provoking, or encouraging, will you share about it with your friends and family? And if you don't already support the work of Pearl Church, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org.